and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm super excited to introduce Dan Mellinger. Um, Dan and I are going to dive into his uh, his path into product and some startup experiences and uh, what he's doing these days. And um, Dan, why don't you actually kick us off with a little bit of you know the 10,000 foot view of your background? Sure. Hey, Holly. It's great to be here. Really excited to be on your podcast. Uh, yeah, so I started out my career way back in 1999 as a technology strategy consultant. And I came out of um, an undergrad program that was liberal arts. So I wasn't technical, but got into this, you know, technical field. Really interesting thing about the company that that hired me was that they only hired liberal arts people to do technology work, which from the get-go, you know, was like, okay, that's interesting. But now thinking about it in retrospect makes so much makes so much sense because what they were trying to hire it, wasn't deep technology work. It was good communicators and good analysts. So started out working for financial services companies, um, large, large banks primarily. And that company was acquired by a mobile startup back in 2000. So this was the first bubble era, um, kind of the heart of it, like crazy money just flying around and they raised more money than they knew what they could do with. And their investors said, we want to see, uh, this is the acquiring company, we want, to, we want to see some revenue. So what do you do? You buy a consulting company because they just have revenue because they're professional services. <laughs> um, but that got me into uh, mobile really early. So I've been doing mobile stuff since you know way before they were even calling them apps back in uh, 2000, doing a lot of BlackBerry stuff in finance back then. Um, and that's where I started, uh, I guess, building my own products as we actually did have some, some products that we were building for, for customers at that time. But when the bubble burst, I went back to school. I almost I went to get an MBA. I had taken, uh, taken all the tests I needed to take, but decided... Uh, kind of last minute to apply to a program at NYU called ITP, Interactive Telecommunications Program. One of the best decisions I ever made. Um, Two-year master's program that brings artists and engineers together um, with the idea of creating social change. I felt a little bit like an outsider in that group because I neither identified as an artist nor an engineer. Um, I thought of myself as kind of businessy and analytical, but that was great because I was exposed to all these people. And now it was a lot of group project work. So got to get my, get my feet wet and um, in working in, in design and in, uh, in embedded technologies and things like that. Yeah. That is really cool. Before you go on, I just wanted yeah. to ask. Um, so I'm aware of ITP. Uh, listeners will, will know that I'm um, from the New York ecosystem. And uh, I got started in the startup scene in the, I guess mid to late 2000s and I remember that uh learning about it through the through the startup scene here because people all loved to go to the um to the show. The right? show that's how I learned about it too. <laughs> yeah. So um yeah, so I'm super sort of interested to hear a little more about that like how old was the program at the time that you joined and um what was sort of the the zeitgeist like? Yeah, well, well, people who don't know um a lot about the program are surprised to hear it was founded in 1979 by a woman named Red Burns, who was a pioneer in the New York tech community going way back that, that far. 
And the founding story is wonderful. She saw um, the Sony Handycam. And she said, for the first time now, the tools of creation are in the hands of, of everybody, of everybody. Everyone can now create in addition to consuming media. How is this going to change the world? And so in 1979, they were taught, they were looking, I think laser discs were new. And then in the eighties and then into the nineties, it was CD-ROMs, but they were, but it was really theory based, really theory based um, as well as application. So it was always like a good mix. And the technology, as the technologies evolved that folks were using, you know, they kind of had that, that theoretical backing um, to it. And I had been going to these shows because I had a, you know, a friend at work who, who told me about them. And luckily I, I worked on Broadway. So it was just a few uh, Broadway in, in the village. It was just a few blocks over from NYU. So these shows, and if you are in the New York area or can make it, um, I highly suggest going if this is your, your thing, because they're just like fun houses of interesting applications of technology to all sorts of things. I mean, you, you just can't put a, you can't, you can't put it all in a bucket, but it's everything from embedded uh, systems in clothing through to um, like data analysis of, of internet users globally, like all sorts of stuff. And so it was like a playground for me those two years. Um, the zeitgeist was really interesting because when I when I uh, started at, at ITP, it was 2004. So this was, I'm oh, sorry, 2002. So this was right after the kind of tech bubble burst in 2001 um, is when people were applying. So it was all of these expats from the West Coast primarily, like primarily if you're, if you're in tech, tech world, who were coming to this and saying, screw the screw the profit motive like we i want to be an artist and i want to like use technology for for you know for the greater good and so there was so much passion and energy behind you know this is when the internet is the halcyon days of like social media as we became could call it like back in 2007 or so much later where we just opportunities were endless um and so it was a, it was a super time to be there and I founded my first company out of out of a project that I was doing at at, a, at ITP called Socialite, which was a um, location-based social networking app um, or social network. That, and it's it's so difficult to talk about right now because this was before, Facebook was not even uh, like big at that time. It was still like in schools when we started this company. Friendster was still the big thing. So and the iPhone was not going to come out for another three years. So we were doing location-based stuff. Some might argue way too early or too early, but kind of at the bleeding edge there, which was, you know, it's just a, just a fun place to be. And um, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful program. Yeah. Um, are you comfortable telling us more about that? I know, I know it can be hard with, um, yeah, you know, we've I've got some of my own that kind of story or something we were doing and, you know, later something like that becomes a thing, but mm -hmm. um how did you how did you end up deciding on location based as being one of the central pieces and what did that journey look like? No, I'm totally comfortable talking about it and I love like it it can get awkward, but like I I've been thinking about it a lot lately and 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 I and and do you think about it? It, it the impetus for this project and it was actually we started it out for a class that was um, the mandate in the class was what will technology look like 
uh, or what will sharing personal media look like 10 years out? So I should have gotten a clue from that and, and that we actually like, I think followed through on 10 years out, but then founded the company one year out. Maybe it was too early, <laughs> but that's all in hindsight. Um, but what, what was happening at the time were iPods were the thing. And Apple had just started selling those white buds in your ears. They still had wires back then. And so walking around the streets of New York City, we saw people with these white buds in their ears and we're like, all right, it, this is cool. People, people you know, love listening to music. It's, uh, but they're, they're, they've created eff effectively these, these bubbles that, that are surrounding people as they navigate their, their worlds. Um, so on the one hand, you have these bubbles. People are kind of in their own worlds while they're in this very public space of, of the New York City street. Um, well, on the other hand, we have these great new technologies that we're starting to see on Friendster and Facebook of social networking that are connecting people anywhere, regardless of whether you know you both live across the street from each other or someone's in China. So, how can we leverage what we thought was maybe we can leverage um, social networks and these new technology to actually pierce the urban bubble and get people connecting with each other in new ways um, in in, in the urban landscape and around location. So location was really key to it. And the, the premise was, uh, we're gonna let you share stories connected to place. Story could be uh, you know, text, pictures, audio, whatever. You place it in a, place it in a spot. We call, them little, we call them virtual sticky notes. And then someone coming by might find it. And if, if it's a friend, it'll actually get pushed to you on your phone. You'll get a buzz, hey, um, you know, Holly left a left a note for you here. She says, "Try the falafel" or what have you. Or I might leave a a poem um, in a spot under a tree because I think that it's a beautiful place to read this poem or tell you a story about how I had where I had my first kiss. So that's how we started it. It was just this really open open platform, and over time, I guess we 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 built a a, a nice fledgling community. To, Tens of thousands of users, like picking it up from around the world. Um, we got noticed um, in the press, and and we were kind of you know seen as trailblazers. And it was you know it was difficult to use um, to to be blunt because this is pre iPhone. You needed a phone with a GPS chip in it. At the time, that was only like Nextel and Boost Mobile phones, certain certain types of phones. So people were side and you had to sideload it. There was no app store. So super, super difficult to adopt. So people were using it on the web. And then like the really it was amazing that some people were using it on mobile with how hard it was to do. And as a few, there, there's a lot of lessons that we learned because we we built this probably the biggest one it was around focus. Um, we built it as a very generalized platform. And what we've seen you know, in the days since then is location-based content, that's huge in so many ways. But each application probably needs, has its own idiosyncrasies and its own, um, you know, its, own, its, own, its own needs and its own value that it can create. And so, you know, see apps like Yelp, which, you know, it's just the restaurant or, uh, just the restaurant reviews, whereas that was a component of our, of our stuff. So what we learned was focus. Um, what we also learned was, you know, you've, distribution is key. <laughs> you've got to be able to, your customers have to be able to use your, use your, use your service that you, that you offer. And we made a smart decision in 2008 to pivot um, this just post iPhone. We, we started getting a lot of demand from existing groups 
communities, companies that had location-based content and wanted a way to distribute it and get it out to their customers or to their audience. So we pivoted and actually became a B2B to C, um, a platform for creating apps around location-based content. Um, and that proved to be successful. It was a freemium app. There's a free way to use it. And then you could also like launch your own iPhone app. And you had to pay for that. And so we were, we were powering with that model companies like Travel Channel, their, their location-based city guides called Travel Channel Go. So you could see a video of uh, Anthony Bourdain when, when you were in Chicago and looking for pizza, for example. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask you some questions there. So, um, so a couple things that I was thinking about as you're doing that. One of them is, um, did you raise funding or did you go for all that time through bootstrapping or something? We, um, we, it was a combination. We bootstrapped um, and raised some angel funding. Uh, we started out totally bootstrapped. We actually were spending half of our time building, um, building games, building software games that actually were around location-based real city play. Mm-hmm. Um, and we use that, use the income from that to basically port it into development and, and hiring and building out the building out the company. We raised uh, a total of about half a million dollars throughout our, um, our, uh, our time, which lasted between 2005 to 2011. So, mm. you know, pretty decent amount of time. And, um, but kind of, uh, basically we're at, we're at a point when we pivoted where, we had a decision to make. It we either needed to raise a, a serious round, or we needed to um, kind of find a way to make revenue. Um, mm-hmm. And at the time, it was somewhat of a personal decision as well as kind of a business decision. We'd mm-hmm. been at it for a bunch of years, um, saw the opportunity, but then saw like kind of what it would what it would take to build to where we would need to be if we raised you know a few million dollars, and mm-hmm. made the choice to. Yeah, you know, be a kind of normal, I guess, mom and pop business, not a big, big internet story, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, for sure. I think that that the whole story is amazing. Um, so the other piece of that that I wanted to hear more about is is the the, the experience and the decision making leading up to that pivot. Because I think a lot of you know a lot of people we talk to, whether they're leading a product or leading a company, um, you know, get faced with those decisions. And when we hear the stories about them, sometimes they sound like, oh, they, you know, it all makes so much sense. But I know it might not have as you were going through that. Um, mm-hmm. Can you paint that story for us a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, it was a tough choice because it felt like pivoting was, in a way, uh, giving up on the dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really a um, it was a very it was it was a very it was a choice that you know the the kind of leadership and group um, uh, running the company made that was not easy, and it, it probably you know in hindsight would have been ideally made a little bit earlier. Um, but um, it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, how many people were working at the company at the time? I think about about a dozen mm-hmm. or so. Yeah. And how how did you even sort of did you did you do discovery work? Or mm. did you intentionally say, you know, we want to go figure out what our opportunities are? Were these things kind of just so no, in your really face? Like choice. how did you even know? They were in our face. L- luckily, okay. I mean, it was it was we had a lot of incoming, a lot okay. of incoming demand, and we we had we had choices, and we had, we had done some work for customers previous, so we saw like what it could look like as we were mm-hmm. bootstrapping, mm-hmm. you know, 
when you're bootstrapping is a really can be a, a great way to build a business, but also a really difficult thing because especially if you're trying to build something that's a platform and where you know that it will take some investment to get to you know a really large size, you have to make the decision um, when when faced with hey uh, you know say a, an agency um, like we we did a campaign for Ford Motor Company and that was our that was our first big paying thing mm -hmm. and we had to make a decision as I think any anyone trying to do something similar does of do you take the cash. Um, or not, and you you should only take the cash if it brings you closer to your goals. Um, mm -hmm. And it's always going to, I think like when someone's paying the bills, they're going to have some pull. And so they're gonna be able to steer you a little bit, but you have to be feel comfortable that they, you know, if your goal's straight ahead, they may steer you um, two or three degrees to the left and you'll have to do some extra stuff that's not going to move you towards your goal. But if it's two or three degrees, that's okay. But maybe if it's seven or eight or nine or 10 degrees, uh, you're going to have to get back there. And so how do you build and how do you also like build out your statements of work with your customers so that mm -hmm. you own what you do and that or you own what you need from what you do, um, like the platform itself in this case, and so that you're building towards um, your 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 goals and and mm -hmm. and your objectives rather than building solely towards someone else's. Um, yeah, it's a it's a hairy and and fuzzy problem. Yeah, and I think you just described that really well. And it, it's um, you know, in my uh, experiences, what what you're just describing there is not only true for a small or a smallish um, startup that is doing something B2B or has been doing, you know, client work and trying to build something facing customers, but is also very much the case in all B2B platform companies of any size. I think it's just the mm -hmm. scale of those conversations and the negotiations and the work to make the decisions mm -hmm. um, becomes different because instead of it being, you know, a small team of people making the decision, it's like the whole department of sales versus the department of product and engineering and tech. But, mm -hmm. um, but I think that core challenge of, you know, do you have a picture for how this, this, uh, the work that you're going to do to close this sale and this amount of money not only gets you the money, but also gets you further towards the vision you have for that platform. Um, is is one of those pieces that just I see so many people struggle with, and so I'm I'm curious to hear, you know, within your uh, within your time there, was that something that you felt pretty naturally like I'm going to fight for this, and it's pretty clear, or did you end up having any like large, um, let's call them debates, <laughs> where you had to make some tough calls? It's so hard um, to to remember these days to an extent. Mm -hmm. um, and hindsight, um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to completely believe my hindsight, but mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like I had a basic understanding of that conceptually that we're going to have that, that if we're taking money in, we're going to build um, something that's configurable, for example, so that yeah. it's not, you know, it's, it's a configuration file on a per client basis versus like a complete like fork of the code, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we understood that. And maybe in part because we started out like totally bootstrapping, working on com something completely different that was not bringing us at all towards our goals. So I think maybe that learning was built in from that. 
Um, but that does not mean we didn't have big arguments and big debates because mm -hmm. even once you understand that conceptually, it's it's really hard to predict what is going to be useful in the future. And if you don't have a clear picture in your mind of what the future looks like, there's a lot of unknowns. And so mm -hmm. we, you know, we, we generally agreed on our vision, but we weren't always in agreement on exactly how we should get there or how, how the market is going to play out. So mm -hmm. there's, there's risks and risks involved and you have to at some, sometimes, you know, just jump in and, and try things out. But uh, the best you can do is jumping in with open eyes. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. So tell me more about how that, um, how you got from there to here. Yeah, sure. So when in 2011, um, we were, Socialite was acquired by a company called Group Commerce. Um, we, we, we realized again, kind of like this platform model, we could blow it out probably raise funding to do that. At that point, I was CEO, my co-founder had left, gone onto Facebook, and I was sitting there kind of like, I've, I've spent seven years of my life on this, like, I love it, um, but I'm, I'm ready to try something else. And so um, after group commerce, um, I, I was asked to work there. I had to work there um, for a couple of years. And when when that's when that happened, they said you're going to be director of product and director of product management. And I didn't know what product management was. This was 2011. Um, that was not a known term to me. I could guess, but um, yeah. So I so I did some research and realized, oh, okay, yeah, this is the kind of function I've been playing or one of my hats when I was CEO at at Socialite. We never hired someone with the with the with the title product. And so it, it felt it felt relatively natural, um, like the work of product manager, a product owner. That said, I was already like going into a position as a product leader, as a director. Um, so that that was a new function for me. How do you it's it's kind of meta, but how do you, you know, how do you build great product people. Um, and so that's how I got into product and, you know, certainly made some mistakes along the way, but had a lot of fun doing it. And that, and, um, and then from there, group commerce, I was there for a couple of years that eventually got sold. And, that, and around that time went on to, to start something else, which was an education fundraising I had that. I, I still have that entrepreneurial bug, and I and I love creation and the early stages of things, which is kind of brings me back to where where I'm going now, which hopefully we'll get to in a moment. But um, yeah, that I I kind of from there on embarked on a bit of a journey of product leadership and how do you maximize. Um, at the end of the day, I think product people are trying to maximize business value, just like most people in a company. And you have a particular way to do it as a product person. And how do you how do you do that by cultivating a great product culture and great great product um, and great product leaders and great product managers and owners? And then um, yeah, so after after Edco, which was the education fundraising startup, uh, I was at FanDuel for three years. If anyone knows the history of FanDuel between 2015 and 2017, it was a wild, wild ride. FanDuel is a daily fantasy sports provider. And we, a few months after I joined, started going through uh, state regulation. So learned firsthand about um, 
you know, what it's like for your product to get regulated. Uh, yeah. whoa, 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 hold on here. I know nothing of the regulated <laughs> fantasy I didn't sports. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, I've worked with, I've, I've worked with people in regulated industries, but, but what yeah. happened with regulation at FanDuel? So, um, essentially I joined in January, 2015. I started as a consultant. Um, and bit like, through my through my time as a consultant, it was just a three month project. I basically recommended let's build let's build something new, and actually, like I was given the resources and the team to build it. And then, in the fall of 2015, um, the bottom dropped out of the industry, and this happened. Um, basically, the industry it was created um, through a loophole. I would say, and most would say, in federal legislation that basically allows fantasy sports um, and playing fantasy sports games for money. The idea behind fantasy sports really, really quickly is you are, the fantasy is that you're a manager of a sports team and you choose your athletes and then you derive benefit when your athletes that you drafted um, do well in their actual real world games. So NFL players um, draft, a, draft a team of, eight, of, of, of NFL players and then your team, which can come from multiple teams, plays against other people's teams. So Fantasy was was fantasy sports for money was legal, um, whereas sports gambling is not legal or was not at the time federally. And that, now, fantasy sports, I, yeah. <laughs> I still I still need a bit of clarification because I yeah. just don't happen. I've only ever played a fantasy sport like one time, and it was definitely for free. So when people play mm-hmm. fantasy or played fantasy sports for money, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Where is the money coming from? Who's putting That's the money great, in? Yeah, no, it's a great segue, I think, because so when this law was enacted, and it was um, the law is called UGA. It was it was created um, basically to to make online poker illegal a bunch of years back. And at the time, fantasy sports was mostly fantasy football, and you just played for a pot at the end of the season. So your team would be in essentially like competition with all your friends' teams over the course of a season. At the end, they pay out some money. Um, what daily fantasy um, took from that was um, it basically took this season-long game and compressed it into a single day, or in the case of NFL, like a single week. And the money came from other people you're playing against, just the same as, as season-long. You might put in $100 for the season and season-long, but you might put in $100 for a night in NBA and lose that money or, or win more money quickly. Um, oh, now I see how much that sounds like sports so betting. Just makes yeah. move a lot more quickly. It's more liquid. And there's a lot, there was a lot more money on a per player basis. They were worth more. The business models are completely different. If you play, most people know season long fantasy if they play it. And the business model there for, for companies like ESPN or Yahoo that are the big players is advertising. But for daily fantasy, it was actually transactions. You take a piece um, of each of each transaction, and so the more people play, if they're playing daily, you're taking a piece over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And what were the what kind of um, I don't know if order value is the right thing here, but like what would someone pay for a a, a day of managing a team? Uh, it it was really up to you in a really really wide um, oh. really wide uh, 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 breath of that it could be a dollar or it could be um it could be thirty thousand dollars um okay yeah we had players that would wager large amounts of money and they were kind of famous on our system and and Mm -hmm. um and then you'd also have players who 
were much more casual and just playing to have some skin in the game because it made watching sports more exciting. For yeah. Okay. Thank you for the background lesson since yeah. I didn't know that industry at all. So you were working for that industry. You were working for FanDuel um, when this regulation came in. And, uh, and so then what happened and what was that like? Yeah. And by the way, Holly, like I worked for FanDuel, not having ever played fantasy sports before myself, nor mm-hmm. being a big sports fan. So mm-hmm. it was also a really interesting learning experience in terms of being an outsider and not being like in the, in the, in the customer set for the, for the product that I was creating which is both good and bad, I think. Um, But what happened in the fall of 2015 is we were essentially accused... There were two major companies in daily fantasy, FanDuel, where I worked, and DraftKings. Together, we controlled about 98% of the daily fantasy market. There were some upstarts, but since they were marketplaces, the more users you had, the more useful the platform is to the players. And we were essentially accused of insider trading where there was some privileged information in terms of who, um, how many players drafted this, this, this sports player. Uh, player is a really confusing term when you're talking about fantasy because we have our own players, but they're also sports players, very meta. But there was, there was, um, there was an accusation of insider trading. Um, I believe it didn't happen. We're an employee of the other company, got some information, theoretically, uh, may have gotten some information from from our company about um, who the who the players were choosing. And you could basically wager on that information um, because it's it's you know if, if the crowd's going that way, then you follow the crowd, you might you might um, you know, not make as much money. And so you can make choices based on that. I don't think that insider trading that that what we were accused of actually happened, but it didn't really matter um, because at that point it was clear that there were some there were there were some it holes in kind of uh, the information and without without regulation and without some some standards around who can share what with whom um it's not a it's not a level playing field for for our players and they might um yeah they're they're going to lose trust in the platform and that's and that's what happened um so they lost trust and governments lost trust we were shut down by by the new york state attorney general so even where we you know, we our office was in New York, and you couldn't play in New York for a long period of time. But little by little, and actually more quickly than than most people thought, um, because there were a lot of players who loved these games, um, states enacted regulation that would protect players essentially. And the nightmare that I had as a product manager uh, is I thought what was going to happen was I, we were going from a one-size-fits-all, one product for uh, the U.S. and Canada, which is where where you where you were able to play, um, to potentially 50 plus different products because each state had its own set of regulations. Yikes! Um, yeah. Oh, that's a nightmare. <laughs> super, super scary. Um, but and 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 I'm not going to take credit for for building out our regulatory compliance because I was working on some different games at the time. But FanDuel did a great job of, like we we're talking about before, parameterizing all of these variables, um, understanding what the what the states might pass, and putting that into putting that into code so that, you know, to launch a new state or to to update a state when regulation passed was not creating a new product, but was actually just saying, okay, Delaware um, says you have if you're over twenty thousand, then you need a little icon that says you're an experienced player, uh, things like that. 
Um, and we got through it really, really well, actually. It, the, the, the industry was never the same. Um, it, it never kind of had the frothiness. We were, you know, we were a unicorn for just a few months. We were valued at over a billion bucks. But, um, but, but that wasn't what, <laughs> that, that didn't, you know, it didn't kill us. And I think um, it actually, in the end, created a moat around us and our competitor because it became expensive to enter that market. And that's, that's you know, if you look at healthcare, um, and and other regu- well-regulated industries, these moats can be really, really deep. And what what we mean here is essentially, I've got to get over the I've got to get over that um, over that moat of building of of building in uh, processes and and flows that take into account all the regulation before I can even legally operate. And that can be really killer uh, for for a small company. We had the money to invest into at the time to invest, so. We, we made out okay. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things in that that I think are, are great to hear. You know, I certainly know, you know, there are product managers in all of these <laughs> regulated enterprise industries, um, but a lot of times they have trouble figuring out how they get to apply the best practices that we talk about and things like that because of their challenges. And I, um, so I actually really love the engineering side of that story, um, the parameterizing the conditions and just being able to come in and say, oh, okay, well, you know, they set this law in this state, so we're going to put this value in here. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really awesome. Yeah, and I think part of, you know, part of why we're so successful was cultural. Um, it was a very product, product-led company. I've been at companies that are more marketing or sales-led, but we were thinking about these issues and we were very conscious of them from the get-go. And our engineers um, were very product-minded engineers who were thinking about the use cases as they were building things out. So, you know, if, if that, that, that engineer might not have a, might have had a specific requirement that said parameter, parameterize this, it's a hard word to say, but kind of was able to guess, hey, yeah, this is something we likely might want to have a vari- as a variable la- later. So let's just make it a variable for now. And, you know, even if there's only one use case right now. Mm-hmm. Um, to get a little bit tactical on the day-to-days of a product manager for a minute, how did that culture manifest? Like, what were the what were the ways that conversations would typically go? Were there any sort of... Um, uh, rituals that the teams followed that that created that um, that mm-hmm. sense of shared ownership and um, and uh, you know collaboration. So even though we had a, a strong product culture, that's not to say everything was hunky dory and perfect. Um, and one of the biggest challenges we had at the time at FanDuel was that product uh, was located in New York while engineering was located in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, and later also Glasgow, Scotland. And so there was a lot we had to build into our processes and, 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 uh, and our ceremonies to take that into account because um, we were very much like a, a team that worked together and, and, we'd, and we'd see each other from time to time, get together either in New York or, or in Scotland, but had to build, um, build things into our processes that, account for the fact that we're not co-located and we only have a, a few hours of overlap every day. So, and that's, I think, I think you have, you have to admit from the get-go that a situation like that is not the most efficient. 
um, synchronized work hours would be would be awesome and would be ideal. Um, all sitting next to each other would be ideal. But hey, that's not life. And like, let's build for the situation that we're in. And so we 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 did that. And a large part of it, I will I will credit kind of a a shared understanding of business goals um, and what success looks like as being probably the most important kind of like underlying uh, underlying need in, in order to overcome this. Uh, and we actually did that through OKRs. Um, we introduced OKRs while I was there and the chief product officer, Tom Griffiths, actually um, kind of spearheaded that and I worked for Tom. And so I, I got, I wanted to get really involved in that and I helped with the organization rolling them out. And what uh, OKRs are, are um, objectives and key results. Uh, and they trickle down from the top of the organization when fully implemented. So you've got your organizational objectives, then your team objectives, and then maybe like within you know, your department objectives, then within your department, your team objectives, then once you're fully executed, like all the way down to individual executives. And those fall from each other. And when you have, when you can have very clearly a stated objective for your team that that everyone understands um, and you and and part of that is understanding how you measure success that's the key results they're KPIs or metrics that are that are ideally numbers and what and and you define what looks like success you can you can point to that and say is this working or is this not and you all generally come up with the same answer or can at least get to the same answer and that was a great tool for aligning us and also for ensuring that people understood at any given moment, whatever they're doing, am I helping us work towards achievement of these objectives? And that, you know, that really helped us as an organization. And I've and, and since then I've helped other organizations kind of implement implement OKRs and I've found it to be it's 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 trick it can be tricky, especially if the organization if an organization already has that philosophically, like, oh, yes, like we understand we're objective focused. Many don't. And that can be tricky because it's a cultural shift. Um, but I think it's a I, th I think it's a it's a it's incredibly powerful cultural shift and and often one that it's worth investing some some time and even some pain in uh, in in making. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. And um, I think uh, in many ways, some of what I love where you ended there, because the beginning of that story um, almost made it sound too easy. Um, like, well, you know, we all agreed on what outcomes we were trying to drive. And so it worked, you know, but, um, but it's, it's not always that easy. And it depends a lot on the culture and the mindset, the mindset of everybody there. Um, and I'm curious if you could, if you could, um, if you have any experiences or examples that help would help somebody who isn't so sure, maybe someone who has not lived through, you know, an OKR rollout that clearly drove value in their organization. Um, how, how would you know, like, what do you, what are the things you look for or what are the things you saw at FanDuel or your clients mm -hmm. today that help you say, Oh yeah. Um, you know, they're, they've got the right mindset. They are talking about objectives. They are focusing on driving towards the same goal. Well, I think, um, we, we were talking a bunch about how OKRs can help a product development team. Um, but that way of thinking is also incredibly helpful for the product manager themselves when they're working with other stakeholders throughout 
the organization. Um, and if you're, you know, as you're doing your job as a product manager and as you're talking to stakeholders about what their goals are um, and, and how, how they envision achie achievement, um, the product manager is really well suited to, and, pro and maybe, uh, I, might, I would argue, and I'm curious what others think, uh, maybe even best suited to understand whether or not um, uh, the organization is, is aligned in terms of its objectives. Because as the product manager, you're always trying to distill those and you're listening to others. And if you hear all wildly different things from your, your own personal manager versus you know, the marketing team versus finance, then there's probably some misalignment there. And therefore, there might be some underlying cultural problems um, that you might be able to help try to solve, but you're probably not, unless you're, unless, uh, yeah, you're probably not going to be able to solve on your own. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shared thing. But what you can do is call attention to those. And you can also do your part in your own, in your own work to align. Um, because the, if, you're, if you're having trouble working with a stakeholder, um, uh, you know, maybe you're, you, you know, you're just hitting a wall. It feels like you're, you're speaking about two different things and, and, and you're, you're knocking heads. Um, the best tactic I've come up with is go back to fundamentals and what are we trying to achieve here? Think about like, what, what is our goal here? And if you can agree on that, then you, sh and then you should be able to build a logical argument that say, okay, well, this, then this is how we should build toward achieving that goal. Um, if you can't agree on that, then you've got to figure out how to get there, um, and then that, and that's a deeper problem. But that, but usually, if it's a if it's a you know even somewhat healthy organization, you can get to some agreement on core goals. Um, they are the stakeholder. And usually, it's coming from them anyway, and 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 so it, the problem would be if you're having two different ones or multiple. Yeah. 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 I, I think that makes sense. And, and I, I mean, obviously I'm probably biased too, cause I work with product people all the time and I love products, but I mean, I, I would, I would agree that we're certainly in a great place to see if there is alignment or, or not, cause we get such a, such a wide view of every organization. And, um, and I think that's part of why if you're in a, if you're in a true product management role at an organization that, that really practices, you know, all the, facets of it it's just such good training for all sorts of directions you could go because you get to see all the things yes 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 totally so um so you sort of touched on you know you work with um you work with some companies on that sort of thing now but tell me a little bit more so after FanDuel and um you know what you're uh now doing consulting mm -hmm. yeah so I, I realized um yeah I didn't get there immediately I realized basically after after FanDuel that I had been through um, growth stages of companies twice and once where it was, it, we, and, and by growth stages, I mean, this is a you know, startup, um, you've had one or two rounds of institutional funding, venture capital infusions into the company, you found your product market fit, you've got revenue and the revenue models is, is basically figured out. Now let's throw some capital in to really grow the thing out and multiply it. I'd been through that, that stage twice at Group Commerce, the company that, 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 that acquired Socialate, and then um, at FanDuel. And I saw, I saw the problems uh, that can happen when you grow and I saw the, um, um, how, how it can work best. Um, FanDuel did a great job going from uh, 
think I think under 100 people, around 75, 80 people when I joined, to over 500 people in the space of nine months. It was it was crazy. You'd come into the office and there'd be tons of new faces, and you had no idea if they worked for Vandal or not. It was just like, <laughs> oh, that um, is super fast too. Yeah, yeah, and and group commerce, um, similar, not as fast, but I think we went from a, about 60 to over 300 in about a year. And mm-hmm. so I saw what worked and what didn't, and group commerce in general, it it it, it felt bureaucratic really quickly. Um, there were fiefdoms that kind of generated and, and cropped up. FanDuel, uh, we kept the culture and, and, and it, it was amazing to see how you could multiply the size that much and, and still feel like the same company. Um, and so I thought I'd take those learnings and take them to, to, uh, to other companies going through that, that same stage. So I spent about, about a year doing that. And I realized that as, product, as a product leader, my main, my main responsibility during the growth stage would be to grow the team. And I enjoyed that, but it also took me away from the the early stage work that I really love of of ideation and invention and and creation from zero. It's just it's it's an awesome opportunity to be able to do that. And I figured if I can do more of that, more times, like uh, higher frequency, that would be good. And so I'm a few months ago I entered a you know a new experiment for myself, which is hey, can I do this as a consultant? So I started up a company uh, called Real Time Lab. For now, it's just me and. Um, I have a few clients that I'm helping, uh, helping in a few ways, um, but the main model is learn by doing. So one of one of my offerings is is called Rapid MVP. So it's go from go from zero to MVP um, in the space of in the space of a few of a few weeks, um, ideally with the team that you have, so that we can all learn together, and 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 bring it along for the ride. Um, and then I'm also helping some companies with like. Uh, just just really focused on team building um, as well as like uh, kind of process audit, looking at processes and and helping companies to be more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of the things that we've been talking about over over the course of this time. Yeah, um, how do you well, learn how to build? Yeah. That's awesome. I think um, I think your clients will um, really benefit from all the different experiences you've had and the things that you've seen and the the perspectives because it's. Um, there are far more people who are eager to learn how to do these things than there are those who've lived through it <laughs> in the world today. So, um, you know, Thanks, more, Tom. more coaches, the better. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I, yeah, I work with companies all over, but I think in New York in particular, feels like we're a bit later to the game, um, in terms of understanding how product can get built most effectively versus maybe the Bay area. And, I see a ton of opportunity of, of helping uh, here to help companies kind of get up, get up to speed there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think this is probably a good place for us to wrap up. Do you have any, um, well, you mentioned your, your company, where can people go to find you? Yeah. Real time um, lab. I'm at rtlab.co. Okay. And, uh, yeah, just, just, uh, look us up there and, and get in touch. I love having conversations with entrepreneurs and with product people. So feel free to reach out to me and, uh, you know, discuss your need or just discuss, discuss things in general. And yeah, no, it's been a real pleasure uh, chatting with you, Holly. Awesome. Really thank you, Dan. It. It. I'm so glad that we got to talk. Well, um, thank you so much. Thank you.
Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.